Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Noah Chauvin, a recent graduate of William and Mary Law School and current judicial clerk. We will discuss his scholarship on free speech, including his article, Governments Erasing History and the Importance of Free Speech, which will be published in the NIE Law Review, and his review of Anthony Leaker's book, Against Free Speech, which will be published in the South Carolina Law Review. So welcome to the show, Noah. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. Uh, as you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the show, so this is uh, you know kind of a thrill to get to do. Um, I do have to give um, just a, a little disclaimer. Um, as you mentioned, I am currently a law clerk, and so uh, I'm here speaking only in my kind of personal capacity, and you know, my views don't necessarily reflect the views of my judge. Great, of course, and um, I'm really delighted to have you on, Noah. I really appreciated the uh, essay that you wrote about the Ipsy Dixit show a while ago, and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that later in in the episode. Uh, but I wanted to start by by focusing on on your own scholarship. So, kind of in the air right now, there are a lot of criticisms of kind of First Amendment protection of of speech, you know, people talk about things like First Amendment Lochnerism or the, the weaponization of free speech and so on. Um, you're you're pretty critical of some of those or all <laughs> of those attacks on on free speech principles. Uh, I wonder if you could kind of make the best case for why you think people are trending in that direction intellectually and and why you think that's a mistake why you think that's the wrong way to approach these questions sure um, and so I, I think there are uh, you know there, there are a number of reasons why people are kind of moving uh, in in that direction right now uh, the big one um, that, that we tend to see kind of over and over again uh, I, I think in scholarship and also um, you know kind of popular media and that, that kind of thing. Uh, is a focus on uh, the importance of uh, equality, and there, there's um, that which is of course a, a very important value, uh, and people tend to um, perceive uh, sort of free speech and equality as um, being conflicting values uh, in in certain respects, and people are concerned that um, you know free speech, like any right, um, is not costless. Right, and if we're going to protect, um, for instance, kind of racist speech, um, that is going to have kind of significant costs on um, the people, right, who have to uh, hear it. The people who are going to be most impacted by that are going to be kind of the racial minorities that are targeted by the speech. Um, and so, I, I think there is um, a general concern, kind of along those lines, that um, kind of strong protections of free speech values. Um, serves as, as kind of this shield um, for these kind of regressive ideas that, that we would all kind of be happier being rid of. Um, and there's also a concern that free speech uh, doesn't serve as kind of a, a particularly effective tool um, for uh, you know, people who are trying to uh, fight for equality. Right? The, the idea being... Um, that uh, free speech kind of serves the interests of uh, people who are in power 
um, and, and not the people you know, kind of fighting power. Um, I, I think there, there's another concern um, that has to do with um, kind of the, the focus on the marketplace of ideas. Um, and people, uh, you know, one of the major justifications for free speech has been that, um, uh, you know, in the marketplace of ideas, good ideas are ultimately going to win out, right? And, uh, you know, as it turns out, um, <laughs> it's not nearly that neat. Um, you know, we, we kind of wish that that would be um, the case, but there are terrible ideas that have been around for a really long time um, that are still around. And, and so, you know, they, they haven't been kind of fully defeated uh, in the marketplace. So, uh, you know, th there's a concern that I think free speech has a host of costs um, and it's not providing kind of the values that it's supposed to provide. Uh, now, as you say, I, I so I, I, I don't find these arguments convincing. I, I find them compelling, but, but not convincing. Um, I, I do think uh, that we have to be aware that there are costs associated with any right. Um, and, and free speech is, is no exception. But I don't think... Um, I don't think that it's necessarily uh, in conflict um, with equality. And I, I do think we actually see um, kind of pretty good results from it, right? I, I think if you look at kind of the general arc of human progress, it's right, it is bending towards justice. I think free speech has been an incredibly important kind of, uh, you know, aspect of helping to bend the arc in that direction. Um, and so, uh, you know, for, for those reasons, uh, I, I think, we need to keep free speech around while being aware that there are costs associated with it. But one thing I noticed reading your papers was your kind of disappointment with some of the weak arguments that people have presented or deployed against free speech principles. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, why you think some of those arguments are, are weak and why you think that the weakness of those arguments itself is, is kind of a problem. Sure. And so this is something I, I talked about um, in particular um, in my book review of, of Professor Leaker's book. Um, and, and you're right. I, I was disappointed in the book kind of overall, not because that I, because I, I thought his ideas about free speech were wrong. In, in the book, he basically argues that um, free speech, both in principle and practice, um, serves to kind of... Uh, defend the powerful and, and, and repress those without structural power. And I, I think that's kind of wrong on the merits. But what I was disappointed in was the, were the ways um, that he made that argument. Um, and I, I categorize a, a number of them kind of in the review. Um, some of the bigger ones were at this kind of straw manning where he would um, he would portray the arguments of these free speech advocates in, in kind of the least favorable light. And if you looked at those arguments in context, it was clear that kind of his portrayal was inaccurate. Um, he you know, tended to ignore um, contrary evidence. So um, there was a point where um, he said that there wasn't really uh, any evidence that um, censorship could be used against um, kind of uh, populations without much uh, uh, structural power against marginalized populations. Um, 
And uh, there were points where he seemed to kind of mischaracterize the, the free speech right. Um, and he, you know, he talked about how there's, you know, people always talk about this right to offend and there's, there's no such thing, and which is technically true, but the kind of very nature of the free speech right serves to, to protect offensive speech because other speech doesn't really need protection. And my, my frustration um, with arguments uh, of this sort um, is that it, it makes it very easy to kind of discount the broader point, right? The, the, the broader point that he's trying to make with the book is that free speech carries these kind of heavy costs and we ought to be kind of reconsidering how we weight those costs when we look at the values uh, that free speech is providing. I think that's a, a perfectly legitimate criticism. And there, there are people who have made it um, particularly well. Uh, I, you know, Catherine McKinnon is one that uh, I discuss in the paper, um, who go out and kind of carefully weigh the evidence and come to the conclusion that, well, you know, the way we're doing things may be providing some benefits, but the costs outweigh those benefits. And so we, we need to kind of reconfigure uh, the free speech right. There are legitimate criticisms to be made. And my frustration when people uh, don't kind of make the strong argument um, is that they, they detract from the points that they're making. And they, they make it so that you don't need to engage with the substance of their argument because you can point at it and say, well, uh, you say there's no evidence. Actually, there's a whole bunch of evidence. And so it, it looks like you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so why would I bother kind of engaging with, with the point that you're making? You're also kind of critical of the framing of that particular book project, suggesting that perhaps the way these arguments are presented encourages readers to kind of give them a level of credibility that they don't deserve. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And so um, this was something that that kind of particularly bothered me about the book. Um, there, there was a point where... Um, Professor Leaker was talking about uh, the ways in which um, free speech is used, and it, both kind of the idea of free speech and also free speech in practice um, is used to uh, oppress uh, racial minorities. And he made um, the argument that, that um, the United States and the United Kingdom are kind of inherently uh, structurally racist places, and that he even has to say so is kind of evidence that they are these racist places. Um, and I, I find that particular kind of argument very frustrating, uh, particularly from academics, right? Because um, the, the kind of goal of uh, producing scholarship um, is to, uh, you know, examine the evidence that's out there um, and, and use it to kind of support uh, a thesis. Um, and, and so the idea that, you know, having to support your thesis is evidence that the thesis is true, I, I think is just antithetical to that project. Um, and it, it strikes me as just not scholarly. And, and so I, I find kind of that mode of argument uh, very frustrating. So the other paper I mentioned is kind of a, a case study of the role of the government in thinking about how to mediate between the people who want to maintain 
Confederate statues in the places where they are and the people who think those statues ought, ought to be taken down. Um, how do you think that kind of conversation, I guess, as it were, uh, generously uh, framed, um, would, sh- would and should like reflect on or impact the way we think about the government's role in making decisions of that kind and how we ought to think about sort of the speech-like qualities of government action when it comes to public discourse? Sure. So, I, you know, I, I, I agree. I think a conversation is a generous framing there. Um, I think screaming match might be better. But um, yeah, so I, I think when we look at uh, the, the controversy over governments kind of uh, deciding whether or not to take down these uh, Confederate monuments, um, and there were a number of people when, when governments elected to do so um, who argued that governments were kind of erasing history. Right. Um, and people on the other side were concerned when, you know, governments didn't do so, that they were you know, kind of demonstrating their, you know, their, their hatred of black people or their support of slavery and things of that nature. And I, I think that, you know, the takeaway um, for this for, for all people, right, I, no matter what side of that debate you come down on, um, ought to be sort of this general suspicion of, of government involvement in, in speech or in the regulation of speech. Um, and, and the monuments, they, they implicate two things, right? One is sort of the government speech doctrine, right? So the government has the right to kind of convey whatever message um, it chooses to. Um, and that generally is, is a good thing, right? You know, we, we live in a nation where... Um, the, the people are sovereign, uh, and the majority has kind of sovereign power. And so, one of the ways that um, that's going to be affected is through uh, you know the, the messages that the government puts out. Um, and uh, you know, I, when thinking about um, the Confederate monuments, uh, one of the things that I thought about with this speech power is that people ought to be very aware of how they're using it. Right. And when you look at these monuments, they, they evoke incredibly strong emotions from people for, for very different reasons. Right. Some people really like them. They feel connected to them. They don't want them taken down. Other people are incredibly hurt by them. Right. And, uh, you know, will go so far as to tear them down themselves if, if the government isn't kind of doing it quickly enough. Right. And so I, this is an indication uh, of kind of the, the power that the government wields as a speaker. Uh, and I, I think it's something, uh, you know, whether you're thrilled that the government is finally taking down, you know, these monuments, and that's the camp I tend to fall in, um, or you're absolutely devastated by this, right? You need to recognize kind of the, the power that government speech has and understand that were you to fall in the other camp, you might feel very, very differently. And so to be kind of very aware of how you know, the other side might feel um, it, when you're deciding how you're going to exercise the government's speech power. The other way the government is implicated here uh, is in their uh, regulation of speech. Um, and when we're talking about the Confederate monuments, that, that kind of government power isn't directly implicated generally. Um, 
but the the same principles ought to apply. People um, or people understand that um, you know the speech that they really detest. Um, other people really really value, and so we ought to be kind of generally suspicious when the government is trying to regulate speech uh, based on its um, content, um, because. Uh, you know, there ought to be kind of an empathy, right? We can understand um, how important that speech is to the, the people who are uh, using it. Um, and the other aspect of this is, is to look at how quickly um, these things turned, right? Five, 10 years ago, Confederate monuments abounded and they weren't particularly controversial, or at least that controversy wasn't particularly obvious. Um, now, they still abound, uh, but they're incredibly controversial and everyone is aware of it. And the tide has turned towards taking down. It's happened very quickly. And so uh, you know, we ought to recognize how, how quickly it can happen, um, that, that a view that is very unpopular or at least isn't kind of generally recognized um, can uh, you know, all of a sudden um, be the view that the majority holds. Um, and, and be kind of wary, uh, leery of, of government speech regulation for that reason as well. And one, one thing that struck me while reading that particular paper was how it seemed like in some ways the Confederate statues are almost like a symbolic stand-in for, for the people who want to keep them as like a very concrete manifestation of the fact that they value a set of beliefs that are no longer valued by political majorities. Um, and they're also an expression of power on some level by the people who are now in the political majority and wanting to control this particular kind of, of government speech. And what struck me as really interesting about your, your take on this was the way in which it sort of says, be careful what you wish for, because you might not always be in the majority going forward. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, right? Um, I, you know, the, the, these monuments were, by and large, put up to, uh, you know, convey uh, a certain political viewpoint, um, right? Uh, you know, many of them were, were put up um, in in response to kind of civil rights movements, and um, there, there, I was reading about a huge number of, of schools in the South, in particular, that were renamed after uh, Confederate figures following Brown versus Board of Education, right? And so it is a, a clear kind of political message that's trying to be uh, that, that people are trying to send um, through these sorts of things. And you're right that. Uh, it's one of the reasons you want to be kind of very humble about how you're using the government speech power and how you're using the government to kind of uh, convey your ideas, because as we've seen, um, things can change very quickly. And if you're using the government power in that way, there's no reason the people you, you know, disagree with, your enemies, can't use it in the exact same way when they have control. And you can be fairly certain that at some point they will have control. Well, so one question I had while reading both papers, Noah, was sort of, if I'm a realist about 
government power, why shouldn't I use whatever tools I have at my disposal? In other words, why should I value these kind of abstract free speech principles if I just think this is all politics all the way down anyway? Well, so I think um, that that is a little bit, uh, you know, kind of difficult. Um, and I, I, I think part of it is that um, we want to get beyond that to a, a certain degree, right? Um, the idea that this is all just politics and that, uh, you know, when we have power, we're going to use it, you know, kind of as much as we can. And when the other side has power, they're going to use it. And we're going to have to kind of, uh, you know, grin and bear it, but we'll be back in control at some point. Um, I, I, I think, I, you know, if that's the way that we're going to kind of run governments and that's the way we're going to kind of order um, our society, there's not a lot of justification for, for instance, not using violence, right, um, to, to get what we want. Um, there's, not, there, there's not an effective kind of limiting principle on it. Right. If if the goal is just to say, um, you know, we have these tools and the other side has them as well, and we're both going to use them to kind of you know, the, the full extent that we're able, um, there, there's no reason not to add in additional tools. And that's the piece of it that's that's kind of scary to me. It's it's one of the you know, kind of great innovations um, that we've gotten from using speech is that we you know. We, we destroy ideas and not people. And, and, and I mean that in, in a very literal kind of sense. Um, and so that, that would be my concern with, uh, you know, being sort of a, a realist with, with this kind of thing. Hmm. So I, I wonder if there are particular aspects of this kind of body of, of critical literature on free speech principles that you find particularly interesting or compelling or that you think have sort of legs or teeth <laughs> in a way that, that other aspects of some of those, uh, those, those kind of critical perspectives don't. In other words, you know, to the extent you're sympathy, you have any sympathies for those kinds of critical perspectives. Um, are there particular aspects that you would single out as being ones that you are most sympathetic to? Yeah, so I, I find um, generally um, the, the ones that I, I find kind of most sympathetic are sort of the, I don't know exactly how to put that. I guess I would call them kind of the, like the utilitarian edge cases, right? So um, the, the free speech discussion, you know, particularly since, you know, John Stuart Mill's writings in, in On Liberty, um, has, has focused uh, in, in large degree on the ways in which kind of speech is useful and censorship isn't. Um, and, I, you know, this isn't kind of universally true, but that, that's been kind of one of the dominant modes of, of thinking about these things. And I, I think if that's sort of our, our frame of reference, um, then when you look at kind of particular ways in which speech is used that are very odious, right? Um, and look at the value that we kind of get from that speech versus that the harm that could you know flow from censoring it. Um, we find that the you know the value is very low. Uh, 
of that speech that the harm um, that would come from censoring that speech seems very low. Right. So um, for instance, um, this is something um, Catherine McKinnon uh, has um, written about extensively. Right. Um, And she has looked at uh, pornography. Right. And has kind of documented um, a a number of ways in which, uh, you know, pornography is um, harmful to women um, and, uh, you know, talked about how, you know, the ways in which we don't really get all that much value out of pornography in the way that we would typically think about value from speech. Um, and so, uh, you know, there, there is, uh, you know, that, a strong case to be made, um, for censoring it. Now I, I'm uncomfortable with that and it is a little strange to be kind of defending pornography, but, um, I, I'm uncomfortable with that um, as a, a general matter. And it, it's my discomfort with kind of the utilitarian argument for speech uh, in general um, is that I, I worry when we talk about kind of, you know, that we're not very good at identifying which speech to censor. Um, we're, we're not making an argument in favor of free speech. We're making an argument in favor of kind of better censors. Um, which is my concern with that. But but I, I find kind of edge cases like that sort of the most compelling, right? I, I don't think that, you know, KKK rallies actually provide us with all that much value. I, I don't think we would be hurt uh, by getting rid of them. Um, and so arguments, uh, you know, kind of on the margins there are the ones that I, I tend to find the most compelling. Well, so changing gears just a little bit, um, a while back you wrote a very positive uh, law review uh, review, as it were, of of this podcast, um, and then you know you also just wrote, frankly, a very critical review of uh, Professor uh, Leaker's book. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your kind of philosophy of reviewing, and maybe also like for other kind of junior scholars who are kind of dipping their toe in the water of scholarly publication. Whether you have thoughts more broadly about writing and, and publishing reviews. Sure. So I'll say, um, uh, you know, in terms of my philosophy of reviewing, I, I don't know that there is, uh, I, I don't know that I have a kind of a <laughs> central philosophy that I could point back to. Um, I, you know, I really liked the show and I you know, had listened to it a lot and had been thinking about kind of what qualifies as scholarship and what doesn't. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in writing the review of the podcast, it, it, it seemed to me that what you're doing is kind of scholarly here, uh, you and the other hosts. Um, and uh, I, I really liked the show and I wanted to write about it. Um, uh, you know, with, with Professor Leaker's book, um, I bought it and I was, I was disappointed in it. And I, I didn't particularly like it. And so um, as I was thinking about why I didn't like it, um, I thought that I, I could say something, uh, you know, a little bit interesting, not about kind of the, the substance of his arguments, but about the types of arguments that he was making and, and kind of the issues with those in sort of scholarly work. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I don't know that I could point to a, a central philosophy other than I, you know, I felt strongly about both things and felt that I had something to say about them. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of generally... Um, reviewing things, I have found 
it is a lot easier than, um, in certain respects, it's, it's a lot easier than writing um, kind of like a, a long form traditional law review article. And it's a nice way of kind of entering into uh, a subject, right? Um, because you get to focus on kind of one work um, and think about the ways that it, it kind of fits into the universe of, of relevant scholarship. And so it's, it's a nice way of kind of testing how familiar you are with a field, right? That you can sort of draw those kinds of connections. Um, and it's a, it's a nice way of, of kind of thinking about um, exactly where you're situated in, in that field, right? A, a kind of trying to figure out why is it that I do or don't like this work? What is it that I do or don't like about it? You know, how would I kind of build on it or how would I have done things differently? I, I think is a really valuable exercise in trying to figure out, you know, who you are as a scholar. Well, so Noah, in closing, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you're working on now. I see that you've published really extensively already, and I can only imagine you have new projects in the hopper. Yeah, so I, I have um, a couple of things that I, I'm working on one uh, right now. Um, one is um, kind of what I was talking about before with these sort of utilitarian edge cases and, and thinking about um, the utilitarian argument in, in favor of free speech and whether there ought to be um, more of kind of a, a natural rights uh, argument that's made alongside that, um, particularly in the context of free speech outside of the courts, because um, it, it strikes me that the courts, when they're weighing kind of competing values, such as you know free speech and the sovereign power of the majority against uh, one another, it's necessarily a, a sort of utilitarian analysis that, say, um, Facebook and Twitter don't necessarily have to make. Um, and so thinking about uh, how the argument in, in, in favor of free speech might have to shift um, as we see kind of private companies uh, gaining more and more control over um, sort of the speech environment. Um, I'm, I've also been thinking a little bit, um, and it was actually uh, one of your papers that, that got me thinking about this. Um, your paper, I think is Diodan, although I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, but thinking about kind of the, the nature of scholarship and, and what should count as scholarship. Um, as you noted, I, I wrote um, you know, the review of, of Ipsy Dixit arguing that it was scholarship. Um, I, revoke, I, I wrote this review of um, Professor Leaker's book that was kind of very critical um, of, of certain modes of scholarship. And so I, I was thinking about, uh, you know, why is it that I am drawn to the idea that we, we ought to expand, uh, you know, the, the notions of what counts as scholarship, and I still want to kind of police the boundaries there. Um, and so what I've been thinking about is sort of... Um, what I would call kind of the small r republicanization of scholarship. Um, the idea being that when it comes to kind of the, the dissemination of knowledge, um, we, we really shouldn't be kind of enforcing boundaries and however people can get their ideas out there, um, that, that still counts as scholarly. But when it comes to the um, production of knowledge, there are certain rules um, that, that people need to follow uh, in order for their work to be considered scholarly. So those are the two things I'm working on right now. I, I'm certain I'm going to come up with another three ideas by the end of the week and then you know, be very torn about what to write about. 
I know the feeling. Well, I can't wait to read them, Noah, and it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks again for having me. It was a lot of fun. Humble, 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 humble,